Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. If you heard the announcement about the garden, the community garden plot, you realize that um, you should be thinking not really about yourself as much as thinking about what neighbors, what friends, what people you work with, you want to have a garden plot so that they're brushing shoulders with the other people here in the church. That's really the more important thing for you to do. Does that make sense? Um, So I hope you will think about uh, who you know who would appreciate being able to garden. It's a very wonderful property to be out at, and uh, it'll be done very well. And it will give us an opportunity to um, to love our neighbor right next to us. I thought it was interesting this morning reading the account of uh, God commanding the Israelites to engage in the Passover. That He said that if 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 the family didn't have the ability of having one lamb per family, they should invite their next door neighbor to join them. And I thought, how many of us would invite our next-door neighbor? You know. Or another way of saying it is, for how many of us would that be the first time we talked to them? This morning, uh, we are going to look at the theme of the blood of Jesus Christ. And um, let's start by... um, Noting that here at the front today, we have the meal that's at the center of all Christian worship. Back at the time of the early church, if uh, the Romans, the, the, the people that lived in the Roman Empire thought anything about Christians, they thought that Christians were uh, people who got together and engaged in a cannibalistic rite. And they weren't stupid in thinking that, thinking that we had a secret meal where we ate flesh, human flesh. And we'll see why they thought that a little bit later today, but this meal is at the center of all Christian worship. Um, Sometimes we don't celebrate this meal. Some churches celebrate it as infrequently as once every three months, maybe some twice a year. But this Roman Catholic, Protestant, and within the Protestant world, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Baptists, Methodists, everybody does celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, comes to this table. It's called different things, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, Communion. And if you are interested in what divides pastors and elders, usually it's the sacraments. And this is one of the two sacraments that Protestants believe in, the baptism of the Lord's Supper. But even within Protestantism, we've divided over this meal. So back at the time of the Reformation, the division between Calvin and Luther was over the Lord's Supper because Luther was bombastic and nasty. (laughs) And I love Luther. But you read the dialogue over the Lord's Supper between him and, and, and the Presbyterian reformers in Geneva. And it is hilarious because that guy... To say he's in high dudgeon doesn't quite get at it. He's just, is, he's ballistic. 
And the thing that I get such a quick kick out of is he keeps saying over and over again, the Bible says, this is my body. All right. And he just says it over and over. If anybody tries to talk, he says, this is my body. If remember, this is my body. This is my body. The thing that's so funny about it, so what he's saying is that the Roman Catholics are more right than wrong in saying that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. By the way, can I just say, we've got to fix that. Every time I touch my pocket, you, you notice there's a short, and so that should be fixed. That's been going on for weeks. See if you can find it, would you please? Um, and so the Roman Catholics believe that when the priest elevates the host, and when you hear the bell, this actually turns into the body and blood of Christ. And so at the time of the Reformation, you'll find a lot of debate over, all right, once you eat it, what happens to it? If it's the body and blood of Christ. And these are serious discussions at the time. So you would think that the Protestants would, would say, this is spiritually the body and blood of Christ. But then Luther comes along and he says, well, I'm not with the Roman Catholics, but I'm not with you guys either. I have a unique position. And my position is, the Bible says, this is my body. And so Luther comes up with a, a distinction without a distinction called consubstantiation. All right? He's not Roman Catholic transubstantiation. He's not mere memorial, which is Baptist, he's, but he's also not. And so he just says over and over again, this is my body. That's what the Bible says. This is my body. But what does the Bible say? Does it say this is, does it say that, does it say that the wine is his blood? Does the Bible say this is, no, it says this cup is my blood. And of course, Luther never said that, you know. <laughs> the cup. Because everybody knows that when Jesus spoke, he was referring to what was in the cup. And so Luther's just going on and on about how, take it literally. And then you look at the cup, take it literally. You know, well, no, no, what's in the cup? Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, not to offend those of you who are Lutheran. That's not my point. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up is that it is always our habit to divide over arcane things. Things that are nitpicky. And the church should never divide over the elements. Do you understand this? For us to say that we can't take communion with the Lutherans because they believe in consubstantiation, we believe in real presence spiritually, is just typical of our sinful selves. The very meal that's supposed to be a beautiful demonstration of the unity of the body of Christ becomes a division point immediately in the Reformation. So for instance, you all know that I wish that we had wine in this cup, but we don't. We have grape juice. So am I telling the elders that we are failing? No, I'm not telling the elders that. I just prefer to have wine. Why? Well, because wine is what they had back at the time of our Lord. They would have had wine mixed with water. Everybody knows that's what it was. And so why don't we have wine? Because really it doesn't matter. 
You know, whether or not the grape juice is fermented, that's the distinction, right? And we all know that when we take the Lord's Supper and we drink unfermented grape juice, we're not violating the Lord's command. As long as you eat this body and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes again. And so don't divide over this stuff. I remember asking a Baptist minister friend of mine how to baptize by immersion because Presbyterians baptize by sprinkling. So he took me out on the... On the uh, stoop outside our house, pulled a handkerchief out of his pocket, put it over my face, now grabbed my wrists, and out there on the stoop, he took me down and back up. He said, that's how you baptize. So I learned something, you know. So the next day, we're out at a sheep dunking tank at a rural Presbyterian church outside, and I have a 6'2 high school kid I'm baptizing. And so, you know, the tank wasn't large enough, really. <laughs> so I take him down, and I notice that his legs, his head's going to get cut off on the edge. So then I have to slide him over, you know, as I'm taking him down. And, and I put him under, and then I pull him, and I see that this is dry. And I remember that the Baptist said to me, make sure you get every hair on his head wet. And so without giving him any warning, I take him down again, you know. Because <laughs> I didn't want to be, you know. Listen, that's just... God is very picky when it comes to the things he's been specific about. But God has been pleased to not be specific about how many hairs are dry and wet. And every single time we focus on things that God has not been explicit about in Scripture, it is a, a subterfuge. Do you know what a subterfuge is? It's a deception. It's us being sneaky. It's our way of making a big show about being obedient to God because we take him down again and get all his hair wet. And meanwhile, he doesn't have our hearts. Do you understand that? And so don't divide over the sacraments. Now, do, do I mean by that that we shouldn't divide from Roman Catholics? No, I actually am very much in favor of dividing with Roman Catholics over transubstantiation. Because Roman Catholics will tell you, you, don't, you do not take the body and blood of our Lord. If you're a Protestant, you don't believe in transubstantiation. And so why do I divide with Roman Catholics? <laughs> because they divide with me. They say that this is not the Lord's Supper. Do you understand that? And I'll have none of that. That's not what Scripture says, and we reject them. Okay? And not because we want to, but because the Roman Catholics have always been sectarian about that. Roman Catholics have always condemned everybody else about that. And so they have to eat what they've created, which is division with the entire Christian church. Now, we are this morning looking at this meal, and we have to understand some things about this meal. And the central thing I want to look at today is that at the center of this meal is the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you think of all of Scripture, you think of the Old Testament, and then you think of the New Testament, all of the Old Testament is pointing forward to the blood of Jesus Christ. And then you look at the New Testament, all of the New Testament is looking backward towards the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross is the center of human history. 
Every historian is judged by whether or not he puts the blood of Jesus at the center of his work as a historian. All right? Now, where does the, where does the meal that we have here come from? Well, the Lord commanded it. But the Lord didn't command it out of nothing. The Lord commanded it out of the practice of the Jews all through the Old Testament up until the night that he was betrayed when Jesus was at the table with his disciples. And that practice is known through history as what? It's known as the Passover. Now, what is the Passover? The Passover is the account that we have in the Old Testament of the Jews having been 400 years, four centuries, in slavery under the Egyptians. And that that slavery, that bondage had gotten so bad that God heard the voice of the oppressed. And let me tell you, if you're American, you are not oppressed. I don't care what color you are. I don't care how poor you are. You're the richest of the rich all through human history. But these people, the Hebrews, were oppressed by the Egyptians. Okay? And God heard their cry, and God came to rescue them. And you remember that God sent Aaron and Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And they went to Pharaoh. They said, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no, 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 no. And so God began to discipline Pharaoh. And he kept giving him plagues over the whole land. Horrible plague after horrible plague after horrible plague. Until there were nine of them. And every time, you know, Pharaoh would begin to think that maybe he should stop hitting his head against the brick wall of God's wrath. But then God would take away the plague and Pharaoh would think, well, we're ollie ollie in free. I'm not going to let you go. He'd break his word. So finally God said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And we read in Exodus, first of all, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 12, now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Then verse 4, Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I'm going out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle out in the field as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews, a dog will not even bark. <laughs> Whether against man or beast. And then this very, very important statement. That you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Why is God going to kill the Egyptians and not kill the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews? Because God is pleased to make distinctions. 
Now listen, people. That is, that, that is so offensive to us, right? That God would kill one people and pass over the other people so that we would see his distinction, right? Postmodern men hate distinctions, any distinctions, sexuality, male and female. Hell no, we won't go. You know, and we just spend our lives hating the distinction between man and woman that God made and God defined. And as we do with sex, we do on every single level. If somebody's, you know, born into wealth, we say that the, that the president should set it up so that that wealth comes to me if I'm poor. You know, what gives him the right to have that wealth? If somebody's born in, in North America, we say that, you know, he should, he should be willing to have everybody move into his country because why should he be in, America, in North America and we can't? And when it comes to nationality and race, we get especially intense because at the very center of the rebellion of man today is that distinctions are um, the result of sinful man. They're not because of what God does. So now let me read to you again here. He says, I'm going to kill the Egyptian's eldest child, top to bottom, and the cattle, the oldest male. I'm going to kill them, and then I'm going to save the Jews' eldest male child and their cattle. In fact, dogs won't even bark against the Jews. And then God tells why he's going to do this, and it says that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between the good people and the evil people. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that. But I would hope that God doesn't lodge the distinction in any racial or ethnic or national identity. Because we as Americans have evolved so far beyond that. Right? I mean, God doesn't really name the Jews. I was listening to somebody uh, tell me about a certain publishing company, which will remain nameless, where... Uh, one of the kinds of manuscripts which this nameless publishing company will not allow to be published is any manuscript that says anything categorical about Jews. And of course, we all know that's true anyhow, right? We all know the one thing you must not say is anything about Jews. So how many Jewish mothers does it take to change a light bulb? None, I'll just sit here in the dark. You like that, Bob? What did I just do? Well, you didn't laugh. Why? Well, because I was telling a joke about Jews. And of course, you've had browbeaten into you that you must not ever think the category Jew, unless it's oppressed, Holocaust, something like that, right? And what we see here is that God says that he is going to kill the children oldest male and of, of the animals and of the people of the Egyptians, and he's going to save the Jews so that they may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Egypt, Israel. Egyptians, Jews. God's going to make a distinction between Jews and Egyptians. And the distinction's going to be death. 
And we have such problems with this. We don't want to hear anybody talking about Jews and Gentiles, Arabs and Jews. We don't want black and white. We don't want Hispanic and Howley. We don't, whatever it is, you know, I don't see it. Don't see it. Can't make me see it. Don't see it. Can't make me see it. And then when it comes to the distinction between those who believe in the blood of Jesus Christ and those who reject it, we get really good at avoiding seeing that distinction. Not just good at avoiding seeing it, but good at denying that it has any consequences in this life and certainly any consequences in the life to come. And yet this is the central division in all of human history because the cross of Jesus Christ divides. The cross does say to everyone, come. But the cross also says, unless you come, you will perish. And this is what happened in the Passover. And so we go on and read in, verse, in chapter uh, 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the, in the land of Egypt, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house, that's what I'd never noticed until this morning, nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your, your lamb shall be an unblemished male or female a year old. I was so happy to see that God's inclusive, that, you know, male or female, right? Right? Do you think that's what it says? No, for some reason, it has to be a male lamb. What it actually says is, your lamb shall be an unblemished male. Now, why is that? It's because in Adam we die. It's because the male in God's economy is always the representative. Okay? You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I, what? I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate as a permanent ordinance. And down to verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basement and apply some of the blood that is on the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. 
And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And... The people bowed low and worshipped, and then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Pharaoh, picture it, Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, And what? There was a great cry in Egypt. For there was no home where there was not someone dead. So last night, Mary Lee got home and mom and dad Taylor, her parents, love God. They love God. They love Jesus. And so they raised their children to love Jesus, but of course there are children who are Esau's and grandchildren who despise Jesus Christ. And mom just grieves over this. She's 98 years old in a few weeks. She has 26 grandchildren. The youngest is Mary Lee's and my youngest, Taylor. That's the youngest of the 26. And she has, what, 60, 65 great-grandchildren now. And we get together. Once a year, up in Michigan, once every year, once every two years now, maybe. Who knows? And there she sits, the queen in her flock. We have to put up a tent. We have to hire a caterer. And she loves Jesus. And she's a very proper woman. She doesn't say anything. She'll stay at your house a week, and she'll say thank you. And would you like to play Scrabble? She'll probably say that, (laughs) you know. And if you ask her to pray, every time she prays, do you know what she does? She cries as she prays, and her heart is filled with gratitude to Jesus Christ. And so everybody who has rejected the blood of Jesus Christ in the family would think that everything's going on as always, that we're family, we love each other, and mom's fine, and I'm fine, and you're fine, and everybody's fine, right? And then last night, she sends out an email. Now, mom sends out an email about once every five to ten years. She never sends out emails. She never speaks, let alone sends out emails. And here this woman is, almost 98 years old, and here is the email that she sent out. To my dear, dear, big family, have you ever thought seriously about eternity, uppercase, all caps, eternity. 
that life is going to go on forever and ever and ever without end in heaven and hell. Maybe some of you are thinking that when you are older, you will think about believing in Jesus as your Savior, but then it may be too late. Old people like me read the obituary page, and almost every day I read about someone who died unexpectedly, or several who died in their 60s. I pray daily that all of you will be kept from spending eternity in hell. That place created for the devil and his angels. You can't avoid the either-or of heaven or hell. When you die and are buried, that isn't the end of life. For when Jesus returns, and all signs point to that earth-shaking event being soon, our body will be raised, even if it was cremated. And all people who ever lived will be judged individually as a goat or a sheep. The goats will go to hell where there is never-ending fire and burning sulfur with consequent gnashing of teeth. But if you haven't already become a sheep, you can. Many of you can recite John 3.16, and there is the answer, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What do you have to believe? Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and commit your life to him. God confirmed that it was a done deed by raising Jesus from the dead. And God has promised to remember our sins no more. What joy! Exclamation mark. Though a mystery, how can an all-knowing God forget? I pray that any of you who have not taken that step of believing in Jesus as your Savior will not put it off lest you die unexpectedly, quote-unquote. And then, this little statement at the end. I want to quit shedding tears for you. Much love, Mom, Grandma. We're very offended at God, aren't we? And this is not something that's true of unbelievers and not of believers. Believers are the worst when it comes to being offended at the character of God. You can sign on to having the blood wash you and sign off or stand against every other part of Scripture and think you're a Christian. So you can say, yeah, I want to be washed in the blood, but I reject manhood and womanhood. I reject the substitutionary atonement. I reject the sheep and the goats. I reject the, eternal, the eternity of hell torments. I reject, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. We are offended, <laughs> aren't we, huh? We're offended by the elders. We're offended by the older women that admonish us. We're offended by our wives questioning us. And we're offended by God calling that questioning a helpmate. 
And, you know, boy, we just have perfected the art of offense, haven't we? In 2014 in America, we're just unbelievably good at being offended, aren't we? I have found over the years that the best way for me to think about the sacraments is to think about their purpose being to divide. Because if I just approach the sacraments as the great division of eternity made visible here today, then I begin to understand the sacraments. And of course, what is, what is the perfect way to think about the Passover in Egypt? Just think of the Passover as being what God said it was so that we would understand the distinction he's made between those who belong to him and those that don't. And what's the distinction? Is it that the Jews are, are good? No. No, the distinction is that they just have the sense to do what Moses says. And what? To take the lamb, kill it, take its blood, put it on the top and down the sides. That's it. And God doesn't look inside the house to see whether little Johnny's been good. (laughs) He just looks at the doorpost if there's blood, and that's it. And so we go through our lives, and we don't talk to our unbelieving friends because we're, we're really scandalized by the distinction God makes. And we don't want to have to speak that distinction into space. You know, we don't want to have to say that distinction to someone. Notice, mom preached a truly evangelistic sermon to her family because right at the beginning, she put heaven and hell, heaven and hell, faith and unbelief. She didn't take the edge off nothing. And then at the end, she said, I want to stop crying. And I don't find another preacher in America that preaches with the courage and faith of mom. You know, we just want to, you know, we want to go all over the place saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Which is, of course, true if, if they are called by God, if God gives them, the, if God chooses, all of a sudden, here comes God again. We just go out and we just say all the wonderful things to people and think that wonderful things is what people need. Right? Right? You just need to understand how nice I am. Because then maybe you'll come to my nice church and sit with nice people and all that niceness will just overwhelm you and you'll, and you'll start painting yourself with blood. Not. <laughs> Nobody's going to paint themselves with blood because the church has nice people in it. They're going to paint themselves with the blood of Christ because they cannot stand their sin. And it drives them to the cross, and it drives them to dive into the blood. That's what happens, right? And all through the New Testament, again and again and again, what does it say? The New Testament says over and over again, that Jesus was sent because of his blood. Jesus himself says this first in John 6, 
The Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who, in case we didn't get it the previous time, he then says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Remember how I talked about they thought we were engaging in, what's it called? Cannibalism. And so everybody's listening to Jesus saying this, and Jesus sounds completely wacko, right? He's a man telling people that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. A few verses later, what we find is that this is the most scandalous time in the ministry of Jesus. And we find that it was at this time that his disciples left him. They turned away from him. Many of them would no longer follow him because of what he said. You have to drink my blood. You have to eat my flesh. And then occurs what, for me, is one of the most precious texts of Scripture. And it is where Jesus turns to the twelve and he says to them, what, any of you know? He says, yeah, who said that? Raise your hand up high, yeah. Jesus looks at his disciples, he says, are you going to leave me also? And we see that, you know, God is not lacking in feelings, I don't think that there's any way you can read that without seeing the pain of Christ. He is not immutable. He is God who is immutable, but at that point it's clear that he is suffering and that he's grieving like at Lazarus's tomb, right? It's one of the mysteries of his incarnation. He says, you're not going to leave me also, are you? And then, and that's the part I really love, but then it crescendos, because you remember what's said next. And who says it? Big mouth. Not big foot. Big mouth. Peter. And Peter says what? He says, Lord, to whom else should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Lamb. And so we go through the Gospels, and the day comes when Jesus is arrested, and then they have a sham of a trial. It's inevitable. And they put him up on the cross, and his blood flows onto the ground. And why? Well, all through the New Testament it tells us why. For instance, in Romans chapter 5, 
Christ died for the ungodly, then verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, not when we finally cleaned ourselves up, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his what? By his blood. Having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Colossians 1, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, Jesus Christ, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Acts 20, 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he what? purchased with his own blood. And then 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It, listen, God's method of dealing with us is, is, is absolutely scandalous. There's a reason the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why does he say that? Because all of our natural inclination is to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, <laughs> you know, here's an idea. God would choose me. God would choose you. And the thing that's really repulsive is that God chose the Jews. And you say, oh, that was anti-Semitic. And I say, no, that's what God himself said. He said, don't think it was anything in you that made me choose you. I chose you because you were the most insignificant, smallest. You were, you were nothing. And so it's scandalous when we realize that for some reason, we today are coming to this table. And we think, how did that happen? And I say to you, it happened while you were yet a sinner. <laughs> when you were dead in trespasses and sins. God set his affection on you, and you ask why, and I say, just because. It was his choice. And you say, well, what's the logic of his choice? And I say, well, generally, he, he chooses the stupidest, weakest most sinful, most obstinate. Isn't that the Jews? Is Bob obstinate men that care for him? Hey, Bob, are you obstinate? He doesn't want to answer. <laughs> David, David says, yeah, he is. I just saw his doctor saying, yeah, he is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> But Bob loves me. He recognizes like to like, you know? And so every year he gives me a calendar and every month has a big picture of a jackass. 
This is true. This is Bob's... Isn't that true, Bob? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Listen, as Christians, we're the only people in the world that can see and can say what we see in ourselves and other people because we're the only ones who know that Jesus' blood and righteousness is the beauty. Before Nathan Alberson was, got nasty and cut it out of the book that I've been writing, all of this is gone. Where's Nathan? Oh, it was in the first service. Well, that's good. I like to insult people when they're not here. I was talking about this in the book, and I said, if we listen closely to the praise of Christians down through the ages, what theme is more precious to the born-again man than the blood of God's Lamb? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Come thou fount of every blessing, he to rescue me from danger interposed, protected me by his what? By his precious blood. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. His oath, his covenant, his Blood, support me in the whelming flood. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. When I survey the wondrous cost, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. Lord, I believe thy precious blood, which at the mercy seat of God, forever doth for sinners plead, for me, e'en for my soul was shed. And you could go through... William Cowper's, how could, we, how could we not end with this one? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I, though vile is he, washed all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. 
till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. You've all heard mom's plea. My mother-in-law. You come to the blood. You come to the blood. You don't come in your righteousness. You don't come in your ethnicity. You don't come in your riches or your poverty. You don't come a victim and you don't come a master. In the book of Hebrews, it says what? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so when we come together and drink this wine and eat this bread, we do what? He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death, his blood, until he comes again. And so are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? No. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? How could we not love Jesus? How could we choose our ancestors over Jesus? And you say, what do you mean ancestors? And I say, well, isn't that the issue? For so many of us, it's that we realize that our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents had no faith, and our allegiances to our family and our lineage, and for that we reject the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, this table divides. That's the plan. It's not an oversight on God's part. The lamb and the blood on the lintel, the doorpost, divided Egypt. And on one side was a wailing that didn't stop for months. And on the other side was being expelled into the wilderness with all the riches of Egypt being tossed on you as you left. And this is a picture of the judgment seat of God. It's coming soon. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? If the elders would come, let us celebrate the supper of our Lord.